All right, well, if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and start making your way to the book of Job. Uh, We're going to be in Job chapter 9, so you can start turning there. While you're doing that, uh, man, let me just say, it is so good to be here this morning. We, uh, yeah, we were members here for several years, like Adam said. Uh, We left right about this time last year. Um, And yeah, so as as I look around, uh, I'm just kind of reminded um, in a fresh way of God's goodness right now as I am seeing old mentors and best friends um, and just really just family. And so um, if, we, if we have not gotten a chance uh, to meet, uh, which, which is so many of you, I am so encouraged also by how many people there are here who I don't know. We visited, um, I think, three times maybe since we left. Um, and each time that we've been here, there have just been more and more new faces, which is so awesome. So I would love to get a chance to meet you um, but we, we love this church. We, uh, we miss you all. We are praying for you all often. And uh, yes, yeah, so this is just a really, really sweet Sunday. And we're doing well in North Carolina, but in a lot of ways, our hearts are still here. Um, and this, this place is a big part of why that is. And so we love you guys and are just so excited to, to be here this morning. So hopefully you're finding your way, uh, or someone around you is helping you find your way to Job chapter 9. Um, I'm really looking forward to diving into this text this morning. The title of today's sermon is When the Hand of God Feels Heavy. When the Hand of God Feels Heavy. And the reason that I've called it that is because of a phrase that Job uses at different points throughout the book, not actually at all explicitly in the passage we're going to be in today, but at different places throughout the book of Job where he talks about feeling in his suffering as if God's hand is heavy on him. As if the, the suffering that he's experiencing, the way that he's expressing that is that God's hand is against him or heavy against him or heavy on him. And so a, f- a few examples of this just to, to show that is in Job chapter 13, verse 21, Job says, withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. In chapter 19, verse 21, he says, have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. The CSB says uh, in, in Job 23, 2, Today also my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy despite my groaning. And if you notice, most of these verses, including that last one, say that his hand is heavy. What Job is saying is God's hand is heavy on me. But the title that I gave him a minute ago is When the Hand of God Feels Heavy. And the reason that I am saying feels heavy and not is heavy, like like Job says, is because from the rest of the book of Job, we know that it's not true that God's hand is heavy on Job. At least not in the sense that Job means it, right? That God is against him, that God is uh, punishing or angry with him. We get a peek kind of behind the, the heavenly curtain, if you will, at the beginning of the book of Job. And we get to know that that God's hand was not actually against Job at all. In fact, what we know about Job is that he's a righteous man whom God loves, who God favors, who God even is bragging on. He like brags on how great Job is. And yet even this man goes through a time where he feels as if God's hand is heavy on him. So just to set a little bit of context, what's happening in these first couple chapters of Job is we, we like I said, get a, a look inside the, the throne room of God, and we see that 
Satan approaches God, and they have this dialogue about Job, where, again, God is bragging on Job and talking about how uh, he loves Job and that you know, there is no one more righteous than Job in all the earth. And Satan says, of, of course he's righteous, and of course he loves you, because you have not allowed him to experience hardship or, or suffering. And he kind of challenges or tries to challenge um, this, this notion that Job uh, is, is faithful. And so he asks for God's permission to inflict suffering on Job. And what we see happens in the first couple chapters of Job is that Job experiences intense suffering. He loses most of his family. He loses most of his, like, like property. So he suffers in a way that uh, I would say most of us, if not all of us, have probably not suffered remotely close to. And during this time, as, as we see, he starts to feel what he perceives as a distance from God. And I think it's really important on the front end, before we jump in to the passage in Job 9 that we're going to be in, to, to recognize, though, that, like I said, God is not angry with or upset with or, or against Job. There's another example I want to show of another person who God favors and loves and uh, that, that experiences the same thing and uses basically the exact same language. That's Psalm 32, verse 4, where David, and this is in the context of talking about forgiveness for sin, says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And so there's an important framework that I'm trying to establish here before we jump in to the verses we're going to be in uh, that, that is crucial and, and, and fundamental to understanding this passage. And it's this, that even those who are close to God occasionally experience seasons where they feel far from him. Or to put it another way, even those whom God favors go through times where they feel as if he opposes them. And I'm sure if you've been walking with Jesus for some time, you know that. You've been in seasons where you, like Job, feel like God's hand is heavy on you and you want him to remove it. And so I say all of this knowing that it is very possible that you limped in here this morning. That you are in a season where the things you know are true about the gospel and about your standing before God are not quite lining up with the things that you're feeling and experiencing. Maybe for you, God's uh, heavy hand is feeling like, like Job's intense suffering and loss and grief. Maybe what you're feeling is the weight of depression or anxiety that's putting you into this, into this scenario where God's hand feels heavy on you. Maybe like David, it's actually the weight of the guilt of sin. And so because right now you are more uh, in tune with or aware of like ongoing unrepentant sin in your life or just struggles of sin that you have that are ongoing, you're feeling particularly shameful in such a way that has you feeling 
far from God. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at just four verses in the book of Job. We're going to look at the last four verses of chapter 9. And what's happening here, so after kind of the scene that I set up a little bit ago, Job sits and, and laments what happens, and he has these conversations with his friends. So he has three friends originally, and a fourth one later, that come and sit with him. And he has these conversations with them about, about his suffering, about his experience of suffering. They're trying to give him their counsel and advice and wisdom, and he's kind of defending himself or giving some arguments back. In this whole book, for most of, the, most of this book, are these dialogues and these conversations back and forth about Job's suffering with his friends. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at verses 32 to 35 of Job 9, which uh, is a small section, but I think it's a representative section of the kind of things that Job says all throughout the book. And we're going to walk through the passage, and we're going to look at four reasons for heaviness in Job. We're going to look at four things that Job feels, or that Job wishes, or that he feels like uh, is true or is not true about his situation. And we're going to see that, like, the internal like, struggle that he's having in the midst of his suffering. And I'm sure that a lot of these things we're going to relate to. You're going to think that you either currently are or at some point have felt this way, have thought about these things. And you're also going to notice a little bit of a tension that really exists throughout the book of Job where some of the things that we read and some of the things that I say don't really feel right or at least don't feel complete. We're going to hear Job and his suffering say things about his relationship with God that we might not feel comfortable saying. And the reason for that is because we're Christians. And so we know things that Job didn't. Right? Job was doing this. This is, some people would say, the earliest book written in the Bible. So we are on the other side of Jesus, and we know things that Job didn't. We know about the gospel. And so what we're going to do is actually, after we walk through the passage the first time, we're going to go back to the top, go back to verse 32, and we're going to walk through the passage a second time. And what we're going to do then is, after looking for four reasons for heaviness in Job, we're going to look at four reasons we have, four reasons as Christians, for hope in Jesus. So four reasons for heaviness in Job, four reasons for hope in Jesus. Those of you who have known me a while are counting that that's eight points and you're nervous about your lunch plans. Um, but we are going to move quick because um, there is a lot of incredible stuff uh, in this passage. Um, so let's read it. Let's read Job 9, 32 to 35 in its entirety, and then we'll start working our way through it. Verse 32. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. So four reasons for heaviness in Job. Number one. We see it in verse 32. God is not a man. Job says, for he is not a man as I am. So what, what Job's getting at here is that he and God aren't equals. He and God aren't on the same playing field. He, he can't approach him like he would somebody else. He can't go to him 
face to face and like deal with this. Maybe you're somebody who likes to like if there's conflict or tension, you like to handle it face to face and just you know talk to the person and approach them. And so Job's saying in, in the midst of this this heaviness, he's realizing that he can't do that with God. God is not a man like he is, and he says that I might answer him. That word answer, um, I think, means like. In, in other translations, you could see this and, and like to, to respond or uh, to make a case back to. So because God isn't a man, Job is saying, I can't make my case back to him. And I think that that kind of way of putting this about making a case makes sense, especially in light of the next phrase in this verse, that we may come to trial together. So the overall point here that Job is getting at with the fact that God isn't a man in verse 32, is that Job can't take God to trial. He can't go to court and make a case against God and have someone hear everybody out and settle this. And that's heavy. Job expresses this thought in other places in the book. In chapter 23, verses 3 to 7, he says, oh, that I knew where I might find him, talking about God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. And so Job is understanding that he is unable to argue. He's unable to know what God would even say back, right? Like to hear from God because God's not a man. He can't actually like settle the situation even by hearing input from God. Others have expressed a similar idea in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible, understanding the weightiness of the fact that God isn't a man. In Ecclesiastes 6.10, the author of Ecclesiastes said, says, whatever has come to be has already been named and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Isaiah says the same thing. Isaiah 45, 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? And so there is a sense in which the fact that God isn't a man means that it becomes more difficult for us to understand what's happening in our suffering. And so I wonder, as, as we walk through this, and as we see what Job's feeling here, have you felt this way before? Have you been angry with God for the situation that he's dealt you? Or have you even just felt, like, confused or upset and wished that you could just confront him about it? Have you thought, like, if I was being treated by someone I knew this way, by another person this way, if, if someone was doing all of this to me that I knew, I would go up to him and we'd talk about it face to face. And then when you thought that, have you kind of started to feel convicted and, and uh, felt bad about the fact that you were even thinking those things to begin with, for questioning God, for questioning his goodness or his love, or for thinking that you could challenge him? His, his bigness been more concerning to you than comforting? Has this thought created more distance between you and God? So for Job, the first reason that he feels heavy is because he realizes that God 
is not a man. But that's not all. In verse 33, he says, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So second reason for heaviness, we have no mediator. That word arbiter is uh, translated in other translations, judge or umpire or referee. Some of you, if you're using the, the CSB, um, I think even a few other popular ones, there's a good chance you're reading from it, it says mediator. So what all these words are kind of painting this picture of is, again, in the context even of this idea of taking God to trial, there's no one to correct or settle the situation. There's nobody who can hear them out and make things right. Job feels in his suffering that there's no one to stand between him and God and argue on his behalf and plead his cause. When I was in middle school, I was picked to be a peer mediator uh, at our middle school. And what that was, it was an extension of our school's counseling office. And what they did is they picked certain students who would be trained to mediate conflicts between other students. And so what we would do is if two students, particularly students usually who had a history of uh, being friends, got into some kind of argument or fight that was ongoing, they would bring them in and they would have a peer sit and hear out the sides and try to settle the situation. And now the, the, the point of being a peer, of a peer mediation session wasn't just to like determine what was factually the case in the situation and say like, okay, uh, you're right, you're wrong, see you guys. The point was to make peace, to end the conflict, to make the two parties be reconciled. That was what the job was. And so we would sit down and, and listen and our goal would be not to just like determine the truth, but to make peace. And I think that's kind of the, the type of thing that Job is looking for here. He wants to have himself sitting on one side of the table and God on the other side and just hash this out. And have someone who is kind of an impartial third party sit between them and help them come to terms with this. He, he says in, in verse 33, who, who might lay his hand on us both. The image that I kind of have in my head when I read that is like somebody coming up to two people and like putting their arm around both of them, right? Saying, come on, guys, like, like make up, you know, trying to, trying to join them back together. So as Job suffers and as he is overwhelmed by the weight of loss and grief and this feeling of distance from God, he is struck by the heaviness that there's nobody to plead his case and there's nobody to stand in between him. Again, maybe you're feeling that way. And that is a heavy thought. The third reason we that we see Job has for his heaviness is in the first phrase of verse 34. It says, let him take his rod away from me. So God is not a man. We have no mediator. Reason number three, God's wrath is against us. God's wrath is against us. That word rod is an image used all throughout the Old Testament for God's wrath or his anger or discipline. It's talked about a lot in the prophets in particular about like the rod of God's anger or the rod of God's judgment. That's another idea that's usually conveyed with, with the idea of a rod. Isaiah 10 is a good example of that. We're not going to read any, anything from that, but if you want to look at that, God, God's uh, judgment is referred to as a rod or pictured as a rod. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 1, um, 
the, the prophet says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. And what Job is asking in relation to the rod of God's wrath is that it would be taken away from him. So it's pretty obvious then what the implication of that is. It's that he feels like God's rod is near him, right? If he's asking for it to be taken away. So the meaning of all this is that Job sees his suffering is an outpouring of God's wrath toward him. He sees his suffering is an extension of God's wrath. And we know that he thinks this from all throughout the book. And not only does he think this, but the friends that he's sitting with and talking to certainly think this. Each of them, at some point, tries to explain his suffering as punishment from God for his sin. At one point, one of them tries to explain the reason that his sons died on his son's sin. So in Job 13, 23, Job himself says, and this is a, right after a passage that we looked at earlier, he says, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. And again, in the, uh, in the, in the context of what he's saying here, like his point of saying this is like, just, just tell me what I did to deserve this. Like, don't leave me hanging, just wondering what I did to cause this. Let me know what my sin was. In chapter four of Job, verses seven to nine, his friend Eliphaz says the same kind of remark. And, and what his friend says is that, uh, he, says, he says, remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God, they perish and by the blast of his anger, they are consumed. He asks, which is just a really uh, bad question. Who was innocent and ever perished? So Job thinks, or at least is afraid, that his suffering is caused by uh, God being angry at him. His friends are trying to counsel him, like, just figure out what the sin was, make it right, and then maybe this will, maybe this will end. But again, we know that that's not true. We saw in the opening chapters what the reality of the situation is. We saw that at no point did God even, you know, tell Satan in that scene, go punish Job because I'm angry at him. I'm going to, like, let you touch him because I'm mad at him. But he feels it. And the feeling that intense loss and suffering is caused because God is angry with him is a heavy thought. And again, I imagine that you feel this sometimes, that at some point you've questioned, even if you know deep down, right, like the realities of the gospel, like even if you know those, like when it's all said and done, like, maybe you're still in the back of your head sometimes wondering, like, am I suffering because God is just, like, pouring out wrath on me? Am I suffering because of something that I did that, you know, created reason for this? And the fourth reason for heaviness that we're going to see is just the logical conclusion of these first three. It's just what makes sense if these other things are true. So if God is not a man, and because of that, right, you can't challenge him, you can't go to him, and if 
We don't have a mediator who can like stand between us and settle this. And if his wrath is just being poured out on you, the number four makes logical sense. And it's that we approach God fearfully. Reason for heaviness, number four, we approach God fearfully. Look at what Job says in the end of verse 34 and verse 35. He says, let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. We already looked at this wording in one of the verses that I used in the, in the introduction uh, Job 13, 21, he says, withdraw your hand far from me and let not dread of you terrify me. In Job 23, 15, he says, therefore I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. So what we see here is that Job is terrified of God. He dreads God. Going to God and telling him how he feels doesn't feel like a safe thing for him to do. Because he conceives of his standing before God as distant, cold, maybe even angry. His approach toward God is fearful. Again, I just wonder how often we in this room approach God fearfully when we're suffering. And if you have, you understand the weight of that and the way that that feels. The, the idea of talking to God about how you feel certainly seems impossible, right? Of being honest with him as if he doesn't already know the things that you would say anyway. But even just the thought of like looking to him for comfort, maybe of going to church, gathering with his people, it's terrifying to you in the midst of your suffering and darkness. So according to Job's perception of all of this, there is immense reason for heaviness. I hope you feel that after we have gotten through these four verses. I hope you can like, feel the weight and seriousness of how Job is feeling internally, his spiritual struggle. But I hope you also felt that tension that I was talking about. Maybe there were some times that we were walking through these things and you were just thinking, but, but is that true? Because again, like I said, we are Christians. And so we know more than Job. We know more about Job's situation. I mean, because we get to see Job 1 and 2, which, you know, we don't think that Job did. So we definitely know more about Job's situation. But we know about God's plan for history. God's, like, redemptive purpose for mankind. So we have like knowledge that shapes our perception of how we relate to God. And that comes from the gospel. It comes from Jesus. And so here's a huge truth. Jesus changes everything about suffering. Everything about suffering is shifted when it's looked at through the lens of what Jesus has done. And so because of that, we don't end with reasons for heaviness. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go back to verse 32. We're going to start over. We're going to work our way through the passage, line by line, verse by verse, 
a second time. And this time, instead of looking at four reasons for heaviness in Job, we're going to look at reasons, four reasons for hope in Jesus. And again, we're going to go through them fast, but I just hope you are just blown away by the fact that even this, like I said, maybe earliest book written in the Bible is still speaking to Jesus, is still pointing to Jesus. So four reasons for hope in Jesus. Number one, let's look at verse 32. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. Reason one for heaviness was God is not a man. Reason number one we have for hope in Jesus, God became man. God became man. And that man is Jesus. Jesus is God as man. He was incarnated and came to earth and lived a human life as a human being, walking on the same ground as Job. And when he became a man, he didn't live an easy life, but he suffered. He suffered the most of any human being who's ever lived, and he deserved to suffer the least, meaning his suffering was the most unjust suffering of anybody who had ever lived. He lived the full human experience. And he understands what it feels like to suffer as a human. Not only did he become human, not only did he become a human who suffers, but in many ways, he became a human like Job. Think about some of these parallels between Jesus and Job. Jesus suffered greatly. Jesus experienced extreme loss. He was physically stricken. He was mocked and scorned. He was let down by his friends. He was accused of blaspheming God. Jesus cries out to the Father. Unlike Job, Satan is allowed to touch Jesus' life. Jesus experiences a human death. And like Job, he is restored, in this case through resurrection. And so good news for Job, who says that God is distant and far off and can't quite understand and can't have a conversation about this because he's not a man. God became man. And he lived the Job experience. And so if God feels distant and far off to you and you're suffering, look no further than Jesus. He is near he experienced the same kinds of things that you experienced in the same kind of body that you have with the same kinds of thoughts and feelings and emotions. God became man. Second reason that we have for hope in Jesus. We said there's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. So, Second reason for heaviness was that we have no mediator. Second reason we have for hope in Jesus, Jesus is our mediator. We do have a mediator. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Listen to how it uses almost the exact same language here as Job uses. It says, Paul writes to Timothy, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So there is one mediator between God and man. And that man is Jesus. But Jesus isn't a mediator in the same way that I was a peer mediator. Or in the way that Job 
probably was thinking of having a mediator. He wasn't a mediator in the way that we often like to think of Jesus as mediator and talk about him. And what is that? What was I as a peer mediator? How do we think about Jesus as mediator? It's a third party who stands between two people to bring them together. So we like to think of Jesus being our mediator as him being the person, a third party who stands between God and man to make us get along again. To kind of see God over here and man over here and be like, all right, guys, come on, let's, let's get along. Let's make peace. And we like to think about it that way. We like to think about the gospel that way. We've all seen like the cliff drawing, right? Where there's like God on this side and man on this side. And then like Jesus is the bridge between God and man. And to some extent, that's conveying true things. But I think that sometimes that causes us to think incorrectly about the implications of that, which would be that Jesus is a third party to God. And that God had to be like, almost coerced into like accepting us back. He needed somebody to like go do that for him. But what's actually true is that the mediator between God and man is God himself. What do you think Job would have done if he knew that was going to be the case? Jesus is God. And so I do think that we need to be careful sometimes about the way we think of Jesus as our mediator as being like in between God and man as a third party who's saying, all right, like you don't have to be angry at one another. What it means, I think a way to think about this, it's more helpful, which is that Jesus is our mediator. That's rooted in our, our Christology that Jesus became truly God and truly man in the incarnation is that Jesus is the location where God and man are perfectly reconciled. So Jesus in his body is truly God, truly man, reconciled together in himself. And when we have faith in him, we are sharing in his humanity that is rightly reconciled to God. Does that make sense? So Jesus not only is the reconciliator, the mediator, but he is, he is the reconciliation between God and man. He is the mediation between God and man. He is the place where God and man are finally related rightly to one another again. And then when we get saved, we are joined to his humanity, which means that our humanity is now rightly related to God. So think about what this means just in general for salvation. If that's true, if what our salvation is, is being joined to the humanity of Jesus and because of that, being reconciled to God, salvation is more than just God not being angry at you anymore. It's more than God just like is able to tolerate you now. And again, I think we think of salvation that way sometimes. We kind of zoom in on justification, which is a huge, huge doctrine, but as if that's the only thing that happens when we're saved. That the only benefit we get from being saved is that now God doesn't like send us to hell forever. And then we just kind of end our understanding of salvation there. But if being, being saved and having Jesus as mediator means being joined to the person of Jesus, then we are receiving all the benefits that that entails. We're going to look at one of them in particular uh, a little bit later. But that's, you know, sanctification, adoption, glorification, preservation, 
So I just want to challenge you when you think about the idea that Jesus is like the mediator between God and man, to try not to box Jesus out of the Trinity and not think about your salvation as Jesus just like putting his arm around both of your shoulders, right? You and God. We have more reason to hope than Job even was wishing for in the fact that Jesus is our mediator. That's not all. Reason number three, we have hope in Jesus. Number three, God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied. Job says, let him take his rod away from me. Christian, if you're suffering, it isn't because God is angry at you. Ever. Now, that doesn't mean, and this is really important, that doesn't mean that there aren't consequences to our sin. And that sometimes we have to like, experience the difficulties that come from the consequences of our sin. And even when that's the case, right, that like maybe there's like discipline for sin in the sense that like we did something dumb and that dumb thing has like some reciprocation. But what do we, what do we learn in the Bible about who God disciplines? Hebrews 12, 6 tells us that he disciplines who? The one he loves. So maybe like your suffering could have been like brought on as, a, as an impact of maybe somebody else's sin, maybe your sin, you are never suffering because God is angry at you or he's pouring out his wrath at you or he's punishing you. When the cup of God's wrath was poured out on Jesus, there was not a drop left over for you. Like you won't receive a splash that like makes its way back at you when that cup is poured out on Jesus. Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you're feeling and you're suffering as if God is angry at you, and the reason you're experiencing the things you're experiencing is because God is pouring out his wrath, his punishment on you. Anchor yourself in the gospel. Anchor yourself in the things that you know, at least theoretically, are true. So, so why are you suffering? I don't know the specific reason, that anybody in here is suffering, but I do know some things that the Bible tells us are always true about suffering. That is that God is working your suffering for your good and for his glory and to make you more like Jesus, who we've already established suffered more than anybody, right? If being a Christian is becoming more Christ-like, it'd be pretty hard to become Christ-like without experiencing lots and lots of suffering. It causes you to long for heaven. So God may be using your suffering, certainly is using your suffering, to cause you to like long for eternity. To remind you of just the horror of sin. Like if you're suffering as a result of somebody else's sin or of just the sinful, broken state of the world, to remind you that sin is ugly. And to help you repent of your own sins. God is using your suffering to cause you to depend more on him, to draw you closer to him. And so you're not suffering because God is angry at you, because God's wrath is satisfied in Jesus, that man who is our mediator. So satisfied entirely the wrath of God. And like I said, there's not a drop of it left over for you. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, this light momentary affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
So I just want to encourage you. Don't give in to the lie that it's easy to believe that you're suffering because God is punishing you out of his like immense anger. Three reasons that we have for hope so far. God became a man. Jesus is our mediator. And God's wrath is satisfied. Fourth reason. So Job said, we approach God fearfully. He said, let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. Fourth reason we have for hope in Jesus is we can approach God boldly. Good news for Job. He can speak to God without fearing him. There is a way for him to approach God's throne without dread. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. I love this verse, and it's such a perfect counter to what Job says. Hebrews 4, 16, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. Finding mercy. Ephesians 3, verse 12. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with boldness and confidence. So why is it that we can approach God without fear? Because we are his children. I mentioned adoption a minute ago. That is a thing that we get. As we are joined to the Son, we become sons of God. Of course you can approach, a child can approach his father without fearing him. As we are united to the son, we are regarded in the same way as the son is by the father. And the son certainly doesn't approach God fearfully. So as part of the family of God, we are able to approach God boldly without dread. A a way that I (laughs) heard somebody else explain the idea of adoption uh, that I think is just a really great illustration of the kind of access that we have to God is that if I were to go to D.C. or to some political event and want to hug the president and I started running at him with my arms open, at best, I'm getting tackled. Like, like best case scenario, I'm getting jumped by several secret servicemen. But I'm the president's child and I run at him like this, they're clearing a path for me. No one is stopping me from getting to my father. And that's the access that we have to God. We have path-clearing access to God. So our access to God is confident. Rooted in the truth of the gospel, we know that we can go to him with confidence, knowing that he is going to listen to us, that he's going to show us grace and mercy. We also have constant access to God. I want to encourage you to approach God boldly, Often, I think sometimes we take our constant access to God for granted and we think that because we can pray whenever that we will just pray later. And in an ironic kind of sense, the more that you're able to pray, the, sometimes in our flesh, the less we do because there's always a time we can do it later. And so I want to encourage you in your confident access to God, make your access to God constant. Take advantage of the fact that, like a son, you can go to God whenever you need him. So, 
we have plenty of reason for hope in Jesus. We see things that Job didn't see in the midst of his suffering. And maybe this helped you see things that you're not seeing in the midst of your suffering. Maybe you're kind of having your, uh, your, your vision clouded right now by the circumstances that you're experiencing. A lot of people don't really like the ending of the book of Job. Eventually, God does come and speak to Job, not uh, as a person. He comes, the, the book says, in a whirlwind. And the kind of resolution to this, I mean, massive book exploring why humans suffer, that again, I, and I hope you're even encouraged by this, like the fact that, again, this is like an ancient, ancient book. And the same kinds of things that you're feeling were felt then and written about then. And so this whole book is trying to explore reasons why humans suffer, right? And, and why God allows humans to suffer. And it builds toward this climax where God comes and speaks to Job. And what do we find out? Basically nothing. The resolution that God tells Job is more or less, you weren't there when I made the world. You aren't there when I'm keeping it spinning. Trust me to do my thing. And a lot of people don't like that ending of the book of Job. And then eventually Job is restored a hundredfold. He receives back more than he could have ever possibly lost. But people leave this book still searching for like, what is our hope in suffering? And as Christians who read the Bible in a way where everything is about Jesus, like we did with this passage, I think it becomes clear that our hope in suffering is Jesus. That the point of this book could be to show us that Jesus is all the things Job is longing for and that you're longing for and you're suffering. That Jesus is the hope for all the heaviness that you're feeling and the weight of your loss or grief or depression or anxiety or guilt or shame. The answer to our suffering is to look to Jesus who has made us right with God who has demonstrated God's overwhelming love and care and provision for us, who's given us hope for a glorious future that is eternally secure in him. He is the answer to the longings that we feel in our suffering, the longings that Job was feeling. He's the answer to the questions that we ask. The answer to those questions is just Jesus. The gospel. He's the answer to the doubts that we experience when we're suffering and our assurance in those our assurance that we are right with God and loved by God, our assurance that we can trust God. So I encourage you, just read more of the book of Job and just look at the things that Job is saying and how Jesus is the fulfillment or the answer to those things. And then, of course, it's to look at your suffering in that way. So while the band makes their way uh, back up here and we begin to sing again soon, I just want to kind of spur you towards some action. How can you decide to live differently in light of all of this? If you're an unbeliever, which I'm certain in a room this big there are, know that you are invited into this. There can be hope and meaning in the midst of your heaviness. Now, none of this is true for you apart from Jesus. But if you are joined to him, 
you are invited into a reality where there is meaning and purpose in your suffering. But if you're a believer, so now I'm speaking to the church, what does it look like for you to live this like right now? So look to Jesus. Don't believe the lies that the enemy or that your flesh and your circumstances, maybe like Job, even your friends, are telling you about what's true in your standing before God in the midst of your suffering. If you've been made right with him in the gospel, then look to him as the assurance of all these things in your suffering. Remember the things that you know. You have plenty of reason to be heavy if you look at what's going on here, sure. But if you set your mind on the things of above, you have plenty more reason for hope in Jesus. So let's worship him now.